Welcome to Happy Path Programming. I'm Bruce Eckle. I'm James Ward. Well, hello. This week we have Luciano Romalo, the author of Fluent Python, and the second edition came out just in the last few months, right? Yes, in April. In April. Okay, so quite recent. And you worked, like you worked really hard on the first edition, and then you worked probably, did, did you put more time in on the second edition than the first? Because I actually the, did. <laughs> that's the experience that I had when I was doing editions. You, you expected the time amount would go down. You would think. Edition, I, I thought so. Yes. But, no, that's one yeah. of the common yeah. illusions. Yeah, because yeah. the, the later editions of Thinking of Java took more yeah. time than the first edition. Huh. Yeah. Yeah, because you're... You know more, and you have to polish it, and you have to change it. And... Yeah, and there were brand new things that I thought needed to be covered, but also there were things that I needed to rethink because of new huh. features. Mm -hmm. oh, right. Like, for instance, there was, an, there was already in the first edition a chapter about interfaces that talked about duct typing and the use of ABCs, you know, abstract-based classes and, and, and all that. And then... Uh, between the, the two editions, now we have protocols in Python. So that's a third way of thinking about these same huh. issues. And I really had to rethink. That was one of the hardest chapters. Yeah. And Luciano is here with us in Crested View. Live so, in Crested yes, View. Because he likes to have you up here. In the he likes to come here. Us. Thank you so much, Bruce and James. For this is like your fifth trip here or something like that? I think so. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, it's good to have you. And, um, you you've been doing python for a long time right? yes yeah, since 98 yeah <laughs> wow that's a that's like a really long time that's when you that's when you discovered it yes i've yeah. actually been using it longer than you oh yeah weird. yeah but not as not as oh yeah I, I discovered it like for me well i had only been doing c plus plus and then there was this pearl thing and it was like oh my gosh it just work. It just runs. Just you know, you don't yeah, have to yeah, do yeah, all this yeah, extra yeah. stuff. This is awesome. And then a couple a couple weeks later, I tried reading my Perl code. I was like, I don't understand what I wrote two weeks ago. <laughs> so then, and then sometime after that, it was Python, and I don't even remember. You know, the yeah. first version was one point two or one point three or something yeah. like that. So it was. Huh. It's probably mid nineties that I started yeah. playing with it. But you like committed <laughs> yes I I, I I created a company right afterwards to leverage uh, a framework that was uh, called zope mm -hmm. oh, that became yeah. the foundation of plone yeah mm -hmm. because I was doing content management work uh -huh. you know uh, custom co content management systems and that was really very advanced and very quick to do stuff yeah so yeah within Six months of having first seen Python, I had a company where everybody was doing Python. Mm. Wow. You were in. <laughs> yeah. That's cool. So you started the company? Yes. Oh, wow. And how many employees did you have? Uh, we lasted about five years, and wow. in the end, we had 15 people in the payroll. Wow. Okay. But, yeah, then... The babe, well, the, the, the web... That was in 99 that I started the company, and, mm. and the, the web bubble burst mm -hmm. so it, things became much more difficult for us and then eventually uh, we we shut down yeah okay yeah but okay. we didn't know anybody money yeah, so oh well that's okay. nice yeah that's, no. good. that's a good that's a good thing yeah. so bruce uh he always brings python into our podcast episodes 
but now we really get to have an actual Python episode. So this, this will be fun. Yes. Um, what I want to hear maybe from both of you, what do you like about Python? What, what drew you to it initially and why have you stuck mm -hmm. with it for so long? Yeah. So it's nice that we started this conversation by reminiscing about 98 and 99, because at that time I started doing web development in 94. And at the time, what you did was Perl, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. Or C. Yeah, but yeah. I wasn't into that. So I, I, I it's, it was one of those efforts that I've done a few times in my life to, no, I really want to like this language. So I did my best to like Perl. And, uh, and then Java came along, and I, I, I was a Pascal person before. Mm -hmm. So I, was, I liked very explicit and well-structured things. And Java had that. Yeah. And also Java was object-oriented, which Pro was not at the time. So I, de I, I decided to try and really like Java very much also. <laughs> but then when I found... So what happened was, at some point, Pro 5 came out and it had some object-oriented features. And then in the Pro mailing list, it was a, a, a recurring theme that people were talking about how to solve a, a certain problem in Perl, in object-oriented Perl, and people would say, oh, in Python, this is how they do it. <laughs> so after the, about the third time that I heard Python mentioned in that context, I went to look it up. And for me, it was just wonderful because for me, it was like this clean, well-structured, really object-oriented language like Java, but it was also concise and you could write little scripts that did things, interesting things in a few lines of code like Perl. So it was like, really, for me, Python was the marriage of the best features that I saw in Java and Perl without most of the worst features. Yeah. 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 I have gone through a whole thing because very early, uh, the Python conference was run by this uh, management company. Yeah. Uh -huh. so, did you ever go to one of those? Yes, in Alexandria. Okay. 2002, I think. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. And it was still being run by the... Yes. And every year they would say, oh, this is terrible. We're losing money on this. And then they would do it again the next year. And you're going, huh, I wonder what your business model is. But, <laughs> but at one of those, I gave the... Um, I can't remember if it was the opening or closing keynote. Mm -hmm. And um, and mine was why I love Python. Mm -hmm. And it was um, obviously popular. I was uh, preaching to the choir in yes. this case. Um, but, <laughs> but I was trying to go through and look at all the reasons that I loved Python. And uh, just recently, I've kind of rethought all that because those were, you know, various uh, technical features and things like that. But I realized, you know, I think what I like, uh, love about Python most is because of the way it treats the programmer in all ways, including, and so Python has the, the best community I've ever yes. seen. And okay. that came from what yes. Guido did, the, yes. you know, his focus and everything, yes. but also because his focus was creating a language that was nice. Approachable. Approachable, yes. but, but I think really you can feel that the care sure. for the programmer in yes. that. And mm -hmm. then it percolates through the entire community. Exactly. And you can't yeah. you you can't like 
discover that your community has gone sour and fix it later. It yes. has to be built in from the beginning. Yes. And that has to be the vision of yes. the, you know, the group that starts it. And that had a, me a major influence on the history of the language. Mm -hmm. And I might even say that history of programming languages in general, because of the success of Python, that still persists, right? If you look at the at Ruby and Python, which technically, in terms of features and strengths and weaknesses, are very similar, mm -hmm. but Ruby is kind of in a decline, and Python is still going up. Mm -hmm. Why was that? Because of machine learning, and why? Because since the language was approachable. In the 90s, people like Dave Beasley and others started to, to, to think, okay, Python is a very good language to orchestrate processing, heavyweight processing done in, science, in the sciences. Hmm. So we already have this, these libraries in C++ and C and Fortran that do you know, linear algebra, statistics, everything. And now we just need the bindings so that people can write short programs and use those highly efficient things. So that was important, but it was kind of a niche in the physics, you know, in the hard sciences. But then when this new approach to AI came about, which we call machine, machine learning, which is based on math more than the previous approach, which was more symbolic. Yeah. Then suddenly, which language had the best ecosystem of libraries that already did all the math, yeah. and that was also high level and approachable. Yeah. So that's why Python. Yeah, it was kind of in the right yeah. place at the right time. Yeah, exactly. But it got there because there was a foundation of people who yes. cared about yes. about taking Making, the math and wrapping it into into something in, that was usable and copy to and people, pasteable to and, people like he, like physicists yeah. who are not software they don't engineers. Want to be programmers. They don't want exactly. Yeah. No. yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'd, I'd seen this, uh, somebody did a study or I don't know, maybe it was more anecdotal than that, but they, they figured out that most people that are writing Python code for machine learning, data science, like sort of stuff, they actually could, can't usually pass the engineering, the software engineering, um, like, uh, exams to get a job in software engineering sure, yeah. because they haven't been taught the, mm -hmm. the like traditional sure. computer science algorithms, data structures, yes. and even but the they tooling, can, uh, the tooling, yeah, like the tooling, kids. but they can do amazing things. Yes. And to me, that says so yes. much about the language yes, totally. mm -hmm. and the communities, yeah. mm -hmm. the foundations. Of so I always loved in the, in going to Python conferences because of the diversity in the biggest sense of the talks. Because you had people like an oceanographer, you know, yeah. and uh, a health professional, things of people of different uh, areas of knowledge. Yeah. And of course, that was. They're domain experts. Domains. Who, yes, domain experts who, who are able to. Huge variety of domains, but they've been able to use Python exactly. to, to get their, yeah. to mm -hmm. help them get yeah. their job done. Well, and I think part of that is the, the way that Python can interface with these, um, you know, other libraries on mm -hmm. a low level so that yes. it isn't, you know, it's, it's, it's possible to take advantage of mm -hmm. all of the stuff that's written yes. in mm -hmm. those. Yeah. You know. So Python is, has changed a lot over mm -hmm. the 20 enormous five years or whatever that you all have been using it. Mm -hmm. Yes. Enormous changes. I don't know, like it's hard for languages to change. 
-hmm. especially like the Python two to Python three was kind of a big mm -hmm. um, challenging time for Python. Mm -hmm. Like, what has it been like to stick with one language for that long? Because I certainly haven't stuck with one language <laughs> for that long. <laughs> yeah, I well, I haven't. I haven't. Like all, whenever I need to do tooling for a book or whatever, I just that's what I I use Python for that because yeah. it's like the the right tool for that job. Um, but in the meantime, I've like, you know, experimented with all kinds of different languages. And I don't know, every time I go back to it, it's just a delight. <laughs> it's taken me this long to go, oh, yeah, I should really. I've tried to write books on Python for the last, I don't know, for, for quite a number of years. And, and it's like the Luciano's book is what I would consider, oh, if I was to write, you know, thinking in Java for Python, well, Luciano did that work for me, so right. I, I don't have to do that, <laughs> exactly. which is what, a huge relief. So yeah, I can yeah. focus on something yeah. more specific. Yeah. Yeah. So let me just say something yeah, to that yeah. because you don't know how much that that feels good to me to hear because I learned a lot about writing a book about programming languages, reading, uh, thinking in Java. So that's yeah. really awesome. That is awesome. <laughs> nice to so know that you... there's that secondary effect. Yeah. What's the experience been like for you, Luciana, of like moving through all the language changes and how, mm -hmm. how has that gone? And... Well, okay. So the one thing that I like to emphasize because of this long-term view that I have of the language is that the, the Python 2 to 3 breakage was really a one-time event. I was, in Py I, I was using Python. Uh, I, I started, I think, in Python 1.4 or 1.5. And then there was the migration to Python 2, and most everything just worked, you know? Yeah. The, the thing about the migration to Python 3, that I think the main reason was, the, the, was making Unicode a first-class yeah. citizen in the language. Or had, it already had pretty good Unicode support, but you, have to you had to remember, for instance, to put this undercase U in front of your string so that it, they would be understood, the string literals would be understood as Unicode. And, uh, that and there was, was a lot of weird error messages that you would get too. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, th that's it's really the, annoying. Yes, that's right. And so that I think that was a positive change. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I know it caused a lot of pain. It was uh, like at some point it had to happen. Is it, I think so. And it had to, yeah. Because it was really difficult to explain to people beginning programming. Oh, so you have bytes and Unicode. Most of the time, people want text. Text yeah. is Unicode, right? Yeah. It's rare that you need bytes, yeah. right? Uh, often, you know, people do web programming and they, their frameworks do the, byte, the, the text to byte conversion for you. So you're just in this happy world where everything is text. But, and that was, so there was an assumption that a lot of the migration could be automated. They created this tool called 223. Okay. Mm -hmm. But that particular thing couldn't because it, it required understanding the semantics of the program, whether this string is being treated as text uh, or bytes. Right. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And so that was the main thing that people really had to do manually. Yeah. Yeah, but weren't there some other, um, you know, core changes that they yeah. made, which to enable some yeah, of to, the features but, but, that but, we've been able to add sure, since then. But they were all, yeah, I agree, but they, they were things to make the transition less painful, but still to support a gradual transition done manually. 
Mm-hmm. The automation, I think there was a lot of expectation about that that didn't pan out. Yeah, yeah. But another yeah. thing, so about the about other things, I would say I think the other the three major things that we saw. So today, this is kind of a detail. This thing about Unicode, I'm really glad we are past that. Mm-hmm. Thing. Okay. Yeah. That the second thing was uh, the implementation of a, a way of doing asynchronous programming, a modern mm-hmm. way, copying a lot of the idioms and keywords from C-sharp, like await, async, mm-hmm. things like that. And of course... But that didn't happen until way later. No, it? yeah, sure. But I'm, yeah, I know. But, it, like you, but the, you're saying the I'm, I'm talking about changes. the things that I felt mm-hmm. made more, yes, in, yeah. had a, the biggest impact. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> and... Uh, Yes, and that the, was like the three dot six time frame. Three point five. Three point five. Actually, three point four already. Okay. But there wasn't the the keywords weren't there, but the the idea was there, but with a different keyword. Okay. And then in three point five, they introduced the keywords. Okay. They yeah. they had this in word keyword called "yield from," which did what await does. Uh, sort of. Yeah. yeah. Huh. But that lasted only one version. Yeah. So there's there's been some pretty disruptive changes, but pretty minimal in terms of like, oh, now I got to like rewrite this code. Um, most of the changes seem pretty incremental. It's like, oh, a lot of the the peps, right, yeah. is what they call mm-hmm. them, have yes. been just making yes. it so that yes. that your your code would still work, yes. but yes. they've added yeah. new, a new feature that yes. you know enables yeah. something new yeah. or makes exactly. a, a better way to do yeah. things. Like they added ADTs, they added optional static typing. Exactly. Like, yeah. yeah, that's what the third thing. Matching? Pattern matching. The third thing I would say is now the support for uh, static typing. But yeah, uh, so I, I always like to tell people because Python became, uh, Python, Python's popularity grew slowly, right? Because there was never a big corporation behind it uh, advocating well, for it. Well, and the general attitude I felt like was always, Oh, if you don't like Python, don't use it. There was no, oh, you well, got to use Python. But maybe because there was no corporation. You know, if right. there's a corporation right. behind yeah, pushing somebody's it, job was yeah, to... somebody's job is to, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So it grew organically and slowly over many years, but it was kind of famous when it when this migration to Python 3 came about. So people got this, oh, this is very flaky. But no, so what I want to convey is that this was a one-time event, and everything that I observed in practice before and after that is very incremental and trying to do yeah. as you know as little disruption as possible with the yeah. previous uh, with, with existing code bases. Yeah. You know, one of the big challenges I remember in that two to three time frame was the library ecosystem. Mm-hmm. It's a, it was a bit of a chicken and egg. In uh, that took years to to kind of get through, and yes. libraries were a key sure. part of it because libraries are exactly. such an important part of the Python ecosystem. Mm, huge, totally. And yeah, getting the libraries all to migrate took other libraries, exactly. which took others. Exactly. You know, there was yeah. just this chain of events that that yeah. just took a long yeah. time to play out. And this is very interesting because if people anywhere in, in in any language community that needs to deal with this kind of disruptive changes in the language. It is interesting because the the thing the idea that actually enabled that migration for big frameworks like Django, let's say, was not the two to three conversion tool, which would help them maintain two code bases, yeah. but it was uh, libraries like Six, which kind of created 
uh, how do you call them? There's a word they use in JavaScript a lot for that. Uh, shims, I think. Oh, right. Right? Yeah. So ways of expressing things that would work in both languages. Right. Creating a which common are not, layer across well, both. They are not idiomatic Python 2, nor idiomatic Python 3, but ways that you would do things that yeah. worked on both. Polyfills. Polyfills. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 So they invented, so that was what yeah. 6 was about. So they were able to do that with. Okay. Uh, so they had to get Django. The, poly, the ability to do polyfills. Yes. Then they had to get the polyfills in place. Exactly. And then I'm sure at this point you don't really need the polyfills anymore, but maybe you do in some cases. But no, not, not, so now. not now. Not now. As soon is... as you drop support for Python 2, then you start removing that stuff. Yeah. And, yeah. Yeah, but there's so still are companies using Python too. Yeah, yeah, there are, but most of the big frameworks are not supporting it anymore. If oh. you want to be on the well, because the, the the you know the car developers are not supporting it anymore. So right. it's uh, a yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, it's officially deprecated at this yes. point. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. So yeah, yeah. Uh, so what what but other let's, yeah. let's segue into the topic of uh, type. Yes. Static typing, yes. because one of the things that I learned when I studied this is that the big corporations that have a lot huge code bases that, you know, for them converting from two to three, the static typing helped a lot in that mm. effort. So that's a, a, a tip uh, to the yeah. listeners. If you still have a code base in Python 2, you have to invest in, in, in adding type annotations, which are more cumbersome. Because this so you syntax can add the type annotations in too. Using scripts, using okay. uh, comments. Okay. And, and, okay. and also other yeah. things. But yeah, mostly comments. Okay. And also uh, what they call... So first add uh, some, some static type yes, information. Yes. And, and then yeah. after they're, they're, that, yeah. then it'll make your migration to three. Easier. Yeah, because one of the things that you have to decide when you do that is whether this is really bytes or string, for instance. Right. And make it explicit and have the type checker you know, analyze the flow of your logic and say, oh, here you're using it as text, but over there you're using it as bytes. So you need to do a conversion somewhere. That would be a type error, right? Yeah. So this is uh, a, a good, useful tip for people who are still working with Python yeah. to, to investigate this. So the, the other way besides doing comments is to do, it's kind of, I forgot the name now. It's like header files, but it's mm -hmm. just files that have uh, stub files, they're called. And they're files that only have declarations of, of, of functions yeah. with their signatures. Okay. And the type hints yeah, there. Like the yeah. pound includes in C++, in C and C++. Yeah. Because yeah. the Python interpreter, the Python 2 interpreter can't read that syntax, but the type checkers can, so then it works. Mm -hmm. You have to say, I've just become more and more of a fan of the type annotations. I mean, just mm -hmm. for, for one thing, it's just readability. Yeah, because mm. yeah, you can yeah. see, and oof, it's yeah, it's really nice. Yeah. I I agree. I I also became a fan, but mm. although I, I I I am kind of maybe more known as somebody who criticizes, but I think it's because I feel we need to find some balance yeah. in the messaging about that. Because for instance, when we talk about scientists, you mm -hmm. know, or you know, of all kinds, they for them the cost benefits of having type hints is different. Yeah. The cost is much higher because of the kind of abstraction think abstract thinking that they have to do. Yeah. You know, to think about yeah. types and yeah. you know Yeah, a lot of times I'm sure that they're and, not even yeah. they're not even sure what their type shapes 
should be. Yes. Because they're iterating it's through. Yeah. Exactly. And then, uh, and also they usually work in very small teams and even alone a lot of the time. Yeah. So that's different. And that's yeah. why I think it's dangerous that we, we shouldn't as a community be stressing too much that as the right way of doing Python mm, yeah. because it can have bad consequences, you know, of having instructors telling that to people when they are teaching Python to yeah. scientists. Yeah. See, you this know? is another, this thing that I thought of in the middle of the night, tools, not rules. Yeah. yeah. This is another example of that. You know, it's like, yeah, it's a tool. It might help, yeah. but it might get in your way. So, yeah. you know, do yeah. what you need. And then maybe later you'll discover, oh, this is actually really sure. helpful. Yeah. And, and I think the, 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 evolutionary thinking that Python allows, you know, you can start with the mm -hmm. simplest program, you get results. Mm -hmm. And then as it, you learn more stuff and it's there, yeah. you know, it's like, well, the thing that you showed me yesterday, the single dispatch mechanism, yes. it's like, Oh, mm -hmm. I, know, I, I didn't even know that was there. Mm -hmm. yeah. 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 The incremental learning is, is huge mm -hmm. for, for Python mm -hmm. because we were talking uh, a couple days ago about how many concepts you need mm -hmm. to understand to get to, let's say, hello world. Oh yeah. And for Python, yes. is it two yeah. concepts? Yes. Like, yes. And yeah. you know, most other language, most languages that I work with, it's probably in the realm of 20 to 30, yeah. maybe more concepts yeah. to get to hello world. Which so, for a new programmer is, it's like, oh my gosh, or a everything who doesn't gonna... you need all the features. Oh, right. It's like, yes. like, do you really need to understand, um, I don't know, inheritance to like, yes, to, exactly. to do data science most yes. of the time? Like, yes, probably no, not. No, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Or variants. Well, yes. and, and think what it looks like to a new programmer. If you have to learn all the concepts that you do in Java to get to Hello World, you're thinking, everything is going to be like this. Right. It's something this simple. Yeah. It takes this much. Yeah. Everything else is going to be, oh, I, this isn't for me. Yeah. You know, I think yeah. it drives a lot of people away. You were saying that um, Brazil has the most, where you're from, yes. has the most, uh, what is it? Pyladies. Pyladies groups. Yes. Yeah. yeah. See, so, and that's interesting. The, yeah. the, the fact that uh, Python has, uh, there's Django girls, yes. there's Pyladies, yes. there's, all these things in Brazil now we have uh, it started in Brazil but it's growing elsewhere AfroPython. Ah, uh -huh. yeah. So all these things mm -hmm. that are for specific groups. Yes. So that if you're thinking of becoming a programmer and you go, oh, there's something for ladies or yes. African Americans or, or yes or whatever yes. it's like oh mm -hmm. i'm gonna yeah. feel more comfortable there sure and yes. it's like do we see this in the other language communities this is yeah. one of the things i love you yes. know it's like how do yes. we make it more even more welcoming than it is yeah. yes and yes. i love that it yes. does I mean, that. for everyone yes. for yeah. everyone yeah. and yes. that, that's sure just that everyone yes. feels like they yeah. have a place yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah and for instance and like you said it, it's it comes from guido because i've, mm -hmm. I've watched a few uh keynotes from Guido live and in most of them if not all of them he was all, always wearing the same really old t-shirt that had this toddler working on a computer with an old CRT mm -hmm. and the text said Python is for girls huh. like mm -hmm. 15 years ago he was already using and it looked mm -hmm. worn 
at the so time. So was that was that a t-shirt you speculate created as a knock against the language or something? Or was that no, the, no, 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 no. Oh, okay. it, exactly. Was it was just this was it, it's yeah. it's whereas you know I, I especially when the shirt was made it was like well computer programming is for boys. Mm-hmm. Yes, you know? exactly, and, exactly. And this was this was a knock against that. Yes, exactly. it's like so it's, it's a for, marketing message for Python. Yeah, but being why Python was awesome and inclusive and but without yeah, marketers like, involved. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was just yeah, yeah. and and but, yeah. but but the point is like that's always and I remember at one point he said I want half the presenters at the conference to be women. Yes. And it's the highest yes. percentage of any conference that I've seen. I don't yeah. know if it is reach half. One of the and also in one of the keynotes, he said, "I'm uh, he, when they open for Q and A, he said I'm only going to answer questions for from women because you know you guys have a lot of a lot of opportunities." Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. <laughs> well, nice. <laughs> nice. Um. So what what have been other kind of big changing awesome features in Python over the 25 years or whatever that you all have been using it? So I, th- so I think a, ma- a major change was incorporating this idea of iterables more deeply into the language. That was something that happened in the two to three transition. Huh. Uh, and I think it's super elegant, you know, yeah. the way that lots of stuff are lazy iterables. Uh-huh. Uh, I like generators. Yes, exactly. I've just been coming yeah, more and more. Exactly. Yeah. Can you give a description of what? So generator a generator is. is um, that's the thing. I'm still kind of mulling over it, but but basically, it's a function that instead of returning, it has. There's a keyword called yield, and what it does is it basically suspends the function. It returns a value. When you call it again, you can pass it a new value. This is why when they were starting to look at uh, coroutines, they were going, oh, a generator is a th- you know, yeah. kind of like a coroutine. It, it's, it's, oh, it's like a stateful continuation. Well, <laughs> well, a continuation is stateful. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, it's, right. it is like a continuation yeah. because it's like, okay, you start this function. It has, um, it, it also captures the, it's a closure. So it captures everything around it. Yeah. So it's really this object that you can suspend uh, when it returns a value when to you, you. When you ask it, but then uh, you can ask it for things. And it yeah. yeah. And then when you go back and you go, oh, I need yeah. another thing from yeah. that. So it's automatically um, lazy evaluation. Yeah. You know, yeah. And it's doing, instead of just pulling things off of a queue, it's actually yeah. doing some calculations to produce the new value. It's really, but it can also be pulling something out of a queue. Oh, sure. Yeah. Sure. So yeah. it's, yeah. Well, let's. Uh, it's not really. Co- it's more limited than a continuation yes, because right. it's uh, asymmetric. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, it can only yield back to the same place where that started it. Mm-hmm. You can okay. jump to another. It, it's more constrained. Yeah. Than a. So, than a, so typical use cases for this are um, you have essentially some data stream yes. and, of values, and yes. you you need to then do some uh, lazy operation well, or. Yeah. or um, Think about a map operation, yeah. which is right very, very common. So map in the in Python two produce a list of the results, right? Yeah. And in Python three, it it's a generator. Yeah. So you just so it's similar to like a stream. In it's, it's like like yeah. a stream. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so generators then grew up 
into coroutines by leveraging this other mechanism that uh, Bruce mentioned, which is the ability to collect not only yield data while it's running, but also collect input from the the client code. Okay. Yeah. And then in a in a coroutine, it mostly works then that other way. Yeah. Because then you can use you do a synchronous programming without callbacks. Because what you do is you yield to the event loop, and the event loop will let you know when something is yeah. done that you yeah. needed. Now to. I have something for you. Yeah. 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 Uh-huh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So then probably the async IO stuff. Yes. Rebuilt on top of that because sure. Python had some async IO before that, but it probably was not as elegant. And well, it's like they did several experiments before yes. they arrived at this one. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, it's 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 interesting because uh, uh, twisted matrix, the the most famous mm-hmm. and the, the oldest, uh, not the old, I don't know, is one of the oldest, biggest <laughs> frameworks in Python. Was a synchronous pro- is about a synchronous programming. And it was already like 20 years old when AsyncIO was developed. Okay. And it was influential. Yeah. Guido wrote about how he talked to uh, Leif Lefkowitz, the main author of Twisted, about how things should be in AsyncIO. Uh, huh. yeah. Huh. yeah, although I tried to learn AsyncIO, I mean, uh, Twisted, way back. and. Uh, I think I understand why it was so confusing now Mm -hmm. because they had to create, I mean, you go into it and you go, all I want to do is this thing. And they go, well, now we have this whole set of libraries and all these different, I'm going, why? And now I understand why is because they all have to be sure. that way. But at the time, the the book that I was reading didn't explain that. So it just seemed like this huge mass. But so, and in, in, it's interesting how, for instance, we were talking about being accessible and approachable, and you see this happening again and again. So now we have uh, Pablo Galindo, Galindo Salgado, who is one of the core developers and currently the release, the release managers for the main versions now. He's doing an excellent job of making the error messages more understandable for people oh, nice. who are beginning. Yeah. You yeah, know. Rust really, I think, uh, oh, helped yeah, us yeah. all to see set the, the bar. Sure. Yeah, set the bar for yeah, helpful yeah. error messages. Yeah, and, yeah. I mean, I was just, st- both uh, Luciano and I were been playing with Rust yesterday. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, that was, I mean, I had this experience where I'm going in trying to get this example to work. And Rust goes, oh, yeah, this isn't right. Try this. And I go, yeah. okay, all right, that worked. Now try <laughs> this. And it's like, oh, and it works now. Yeah. It's like, whoa. <laughs> yeah. 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 That's yeah. brilliant. The, the other thing that I was going to mention about being more approachable is how the uh, documentation for AsyncIO changed radically between the time that I wrote the first edition and the mm-hmm. second edition. Because uh, Yuri Selivanov, who is a great contributor to this asynchronous aspect of Python, he did a major reworking of, you know, he just completely re-edited and made it more approachable because the first iteration was more like, okay, so this is for asynchronous programming experts who are going to develop the libraries on top of this stuff. So it was- Are you talking about the Python documentation? The the, the official Python documentation for AsyncIO originally Mm -hmm. was like that. Mm -hmm. was for people like Glyph. Okay, Mm -hmm. so now I want Twisted to support this and this is what I read. So it was very, 
uh, yeah, it, it's for it, experts. For, for experts, yeah. And then mm. now, it, now it's really much more approachable. Has more examples that you can copy and paste to get started. You know, mm. I remember, and the library ecosystem has probably come along too. Where oh yeah, totally, totally. Exactly. Like for instance, now there is this library called. Uh, so it's interesting because almost every example in my, the first edition of my book still works except those that use the synchronous programming oh, yeah. because the APIs changed yeah. so much. It was provisional when I wrote the yeah. first edition. And one of the things also that changed was, for instance, I have a sequence of example where I do this task of downloading a bunch of images sequentially, then uh, with threads, then with processes, which is not really the right way to do it, but just to show how the API is yeah. similar. And then with the synchronous programming, that's completely different. Yeah. And I had to do use two different libraries to do that because one, there was one that was the, the blocking one that I could use with the first three examples. And for the synchronous programming, I needed another completely different library that had a completely different API. And now in the second edition, I was able to use this wonderful new library called HTTPX, oh, nice. which emulates the API of requests, which is the yeah. most popular yeah. language. Uh, I mean, uh, library HTTP to do library, that yeah. for uh, HTTP clients. But it also works with, uh, uh, it has the same API adapted for uh, asynchronous programming. Oh, so nice. then the, the code is looks mm -hmm. Yeah, so whether you're using more similar or async underneath the covers, yes. like you have a similar API. Exactly. Yeah. That was good. So that's one example of what you just said. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah where the library ecosystem yeah. got up to, you know, embrace yes. the async I.O. Yeah. yeah. Nice. Yeah. Um, what about ADTs and pattern matching? Where's Python at? With... Yeah, so pattern matching is a new feature that came out in Python 3.10. And... Uh, I love that in other languages that I learned before Python, not before Python, but before writing the, the second edition, like Elixir, which I've been playing around for a while. I really loved that feature. And in Python, I thought it was kind of strange at first. There's a lot of corner cases because in, in Elixir, it feels very natural because it's built really built into the language, right? It does pattern matching automatically on the function arguments, there's no keyword to do match, right? That's how it works. It's just, and then in Python, uh, it's uh, it's a very nice feature, but I think it's it, it may I've never taught it to to beginners. Uh, yeah. This is something that I still need to do to appreciate the complexities, or maybe it's just my imagination that it's complicated, but. I find it a little bit disturbing that there's, it reuses syntax in a way that, for instance, everywhere in Python code before Python matching, before Python matching, where you saw, let's say, int open paren x close paren, you were building an integer object out of x. Yeah. But when that occurs in a pattern, doesn't mean that. Right. It's a type assertion. Yeah. But that's saying that inherent is... to all pattern matching, at least that I've seen. Yeah. And that's just a thing, you know, that's just an extra thing to start getting used to. Yes. But anyway, yeah. you yeah. had to get so used that's, to yeah. that. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, yeah. That's an extractor, value extractor or whatever. Mm -hmm. You can extract the value out of that. Is that what yeah. that? Yeah. No, just, it matches just, on the type. Yeah. It matches on the type and then pulls 
Well, yeah, there's the, there's this, the extraction is wonderful. Yeah. I think it's one of the best parts. I like when, uh, when I, as I, I was doing research, I found for to show examples of pattern matching, I found an example by Guido that's a really interesting because it's a match case statement with only one case mm -hmm. that he's using just to unpack the thing, right? Uh -huh. Because it's, yeah, yeah. It, because it, it becomes, yeah. yes, yeah. it becomes like a, like a declarative language to extract this yeah. information from nested deep down. Yeah. And so that's very, very readable. And it's just one case. In, yeah. And maybe Python has this as well, but in Kotlin, you can say val and then open paren x comma y comma whatever. And then that will, that will destructure the, the sure. thing, yeah. the, the, the object yeah, into the pieces of Python is like that, but you don't use the vowel. Yeah. Okay. When, when you yeah, yeah, use yeah. just a, a bare identifier. So why would you be... want to, if it seems like those are similar things, the example you gave with the pattern, the case, uh, match case match. and the extracting out the values yes. out of it. Yeah. What's Why would you want to use just a single one over the destructuring into values? Because it doesn't, Python doesn't have that destructuring normally. Uh, it's only within pattern matching. No, it does destruction of of of, of iterables or sequence like oh, okay, objects. Okay, okay, that's but not a, not about yeah. objects. No, but it doesn't yeah. pull them apart. It doesn't yeah. do the thing that the match will do. Yeah, yeah. So I uh, okay. Yeah. Um, so there, so there's the powerful pattern matching now, yeah, which is which is great. Mm -hmm. um, so you can match yeah. on on uh, the type. Yes, which is the example you gave with the int, yeah. um, and then you can you can also destructure in mm -hmm. pattern match, yeah. mm -hmm. um, and then and then other parts of that, yeah. that DSL as well. Um, it's almost, mostly. I mean, my understanding is that it follows Scala pretty closely. Yeah, I don't know if it yeah. even. I mean, I I think I that know. was the model. For yeah. It. So I, th I I think that there are some types in yes. Python yes. now. So can you then do an exhaustive pattern match on yes. on the some type and mm -hmm. yeah yeah nice. yeah it's really nice. I mean it and I'm it feels like the two sort of go hand in hand to me. Yeah. And it's like here oh, are all the types. Yeah. Sometimes in pattern matching, they're, yeah, they're, yeah, which yeah, I didn't yeah. see at first. Yeah. You know, yeah. when you just look at it by itself, but if you look at it together with pattern matching, yeah. it's like, oh, of course. Yeah. But it's it yeah. feels like a different kind of yeah. polymorphism to yeah. me. Ooh. Yeah, some type polymorphism. <laughs> I've just started calling. Since it. you've been working on your talk for Strange Loop, everything yes. is a form of polymorphism. <laughs> well, kind of. It, it is. Of, it is occupying my consciousness very heavily. Yeah. yeah. Um, any other like major interesting features or game changing things that have happened in Python that we should highlight before we talk about what's next? Or <laughs> let me think. Mm. Yeah, and obviously, I mean, there's there's a lot of off the cuff. things. Well, and they just so many little things. I think is the thing that Python has also done well. It's just like it's got a lot of little things. Yes, and and you see those like in Kotlin. Kotlin picked up a yeah. lot of features from. Yeah, but. Um, and Rust too. Yes, yeah. I, I was yeah. reading it. And, yeah, yeah, it's just, yeah. yeah, it's it's inspired so a lot of, of languages. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I've seen um, support for functional programming. I mean, not mm. no. You, yeah. you, you still have to. You know, there's no well in in the um, data classes because that's a feature oh yeah that was that's added. a that's data a new classes. one oh, right. yeah. data classes has an option to make the um 
the, the elements frozen immutable yeah i yes. mean it's not it's it's sort of like what java does with the um you know immutable uh collections which is it throws an exception if you okay. if you try and change it yes but it's still you know yeah the intent is there and that's yeah. nice and then there's a, there's libraries for like funk tools and then people have gone on and created yeah. additional funk tools libraries and there's some of that stuff is pretty clever well and there's lambda syntax syntax that was added at some point no lambdas something. were there right oh. at the beginning and oh, it's wow. pretty awful yeah it's, it's too awful yeah it is i mean because when you think about what a lambda is for it's the smallest amount of code to express a function yeah, yeah. and with python you you say lambda you spell out the word lambda colon. Yeah. It's, yeah. yeah it, it, and it's still, the body has to be only one expression. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. But so. going back to data classes, I think that's a, a feature that was that's very popular. And you mentioned frozen data classes. There's also uh, now uh, typed name it tuple, which uses the same kind that of. Was, that predated data classes. Yeah, but now yeah. there's now you you can use the same syntax of a class declaration, right? So that you have this alternative when you want the okay. thing to be immutable, right? Uh, right. Yeah. But then you can't add. I mean, data class. You can't. No methods. You were gonna say. Yeah, no. I think so. Yeah, you can because now there's the syntax, right? That what was missing was the syntax. Oh. Now that you can write class uh -huh. uh, students. And inherits from. Uh, I know I looked at this because of, my mm -hmm. presentation at PyCon was on data classes. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. And then I looked at name tuples. Yeah. And it was like, oh, yeah, this is very similar, but it, it definitely had some things that data classes, I mean, it couldn't do things that data classes do. Sure. Yeah. But so, I don't remember. Yeah. But, but yeah, there, there I were, think there the things that the data classes can do that uh, are, part, uh, are, are more. Are really advanced in terms of yeah. daily usage. What's um, what's in the standard library in terms of like collection operations, like map, flat map, fold, traverse, that kind a of thing? A lot of that in the like funk tools, the module that he was talking about has a lot of functions that are also generators that are, that are really inspired in Haskell. I don't know Haskell, but I was, you know, the guy who wrote most of that uh, library, uh, Raymond Hettinger. Studied Haskell and then okay. basically brought the main constructs yeah. there. Okay. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. It's so very the, nice. So there is some yeah. nice. And it's highly optimized. It started as a pure Python implementation, this library, but now over the years, almost all of it, if not all of it, is now in C. Okay. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I just came across the thing yeah. where you can discover what's in the core uh, when you load Python is already there as C libraries. Uh -huh. And then well, all you're importing is really the declarations. Yeah. And um, one of the other things that I, I've struggled with this over the years is writing Python extensions because mm. you can write Python mm -hmm. extensions that are originally Python was all C. And so the extensions would be in C, but to understand how to do it was, just and people have tried over the years to create better and better ways to do that. Yeah. And uh, Jeremy and I experimented with Rust to create Python extensions. And I'm pretty sure if I ever needed to do a Python extension, I would use Rust with mm -hmm. the PyO3 yeah. library because yeah. 
for one yeah. thing, if you're writing extension, one reason is yes. for performance. Yeah. Yes. And Rust is going to be yeah. flat out. The, you yeah. know, it's like you're not going to go to the trouble of writing yes. it in some language. Oh, it's not fast yeah. enough. It's like yeah. if it's not. Yeah, you know, if it's not as fast as you need it, yeah. your you reason to take the escape patch yeah, better yeah. be valid. <laughs> yeah, 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 it's funny. See, I've been using Python since '98, but still, I never wanted myself to spend the time to learn how to do an extension. But now I do because of Rust. Yeah, because I know that it's going to be safe. Because the problem mm -hmm. is, you're, you know, you're, you know, memory changing garbage collectors, changing garbage collection, objects yeah. that are really managed by Python itself. Mm -hmm. So the yeah. you have a lot of opportunities to break things and, <laughs> and do core dumps, yeah. which are core dumps are something that are not part of the experience of a Python programming, mm -hmm. right? It's no almost impossible to yeah. to core to core them the interpreter. But if you yeah. do an extension, that's very easy. Yeah. So, <laughs> so right. Because Python is You're on your own. <laughs> Good luck. Right. Hope you remember to to uh, Malik and yeah. <laughs> deallocate whatever. Well, there's that. Yeah, and the fact that Python is managing the lifetime of all these things with its garbage collector. Yes. And then you go out into an extension. Yeah. And there's you gotta interact with that. And this yeah. is why the, yeah. the global interpreter lock yeah. exists. Yeah. So the the I wanted to ask about the the gill and global interpreter mm -hmm. lock. That's a good um, subject. Yeah, can you? Well, yeah, let's, let's let's talk just, about it. let's stop there just and talk about the gill. Explain it first for for the people who don't know Python. Yeah. Explain what the global interpreter lock is. Because <clears throat> great, so uh, the interpreter as it's running is handling all of these objects that your code creates, and this like. Uh, Bruce just said there's a garbage collector and it's uh, based on reference counting. And so a lot of these inner data structures that are essential for the proper functional functioning of the interpreter are not thread safe. So there's this lock called the global interpreter lock, which any code that wants to change those structures has to acquire, right? And also, of course, that applies to the extensions themselves. So essentially what this means is that, and one of the codes that acquires that lock <laughs> is part of the interpreter, the part that runs the bytecode. Right. Which means that because of this, the Python bytecode can only run on a single thread. So it will only use one of the cores mm -hmm. on your machine. <clears throat> Uh, so that's the gill. I, I think it's important for, you know, like a, a, as a, an advocate of Python, when I talk about that, I have to say that it's, it seems like a very bad feature, but it's also something that simplifies a lot the interpreter itself, which is why yeah. Ruby also has that. And, uh, yeah. It seems like and any the, interpreted language, like yeah. I don't know how you could possibly have an interpreted language that wasn't single thread essentially at least on the, the well you can you can but then you have a cost when you're running programs that don't need more than mm -hmm. one thread All right. yeah. which when python was created was not an issue right because in the 90s what you know multi-core computers were called supercomputers yeah. not cell phones <laughs> <laughs> not raspberry right? pies no yeah <laughs> so the use case, so this is still an obstacle. The, the community, you know, the leadership in the community says, okay, any proposal 
to get rid of the gill must do it in a way that doesn't impact the performance of single-threaded programs. Mm -hmm. yeah. And maybe if this requirement was already there, for instance, when the Go language was created, yeah. <laughs> they wouldn't be able to, so you have to, yeah. if, 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 if they've started with something that was already thread safe from the start, it would have been slower, but people would have been gotten right. used to it over yeah. the years. And anyway, the so this is the gill. coordination. Yes. And the gill also makes it easy to implement, uh, not easy, relatively easy to implement extensions, mm. right? Yeah. Uh, now, the as an extension author, you can be uh, smart about that and not just get grab the gill, do your thing and release the gill, because you can... But you can then you can, for instance, okay, so this is computationally intensive. I can actually run threads from C, mm -hmm. and I will, will release the GUI while those threads are working. Uh -huh. And so a lot of the numeric ec ecosystem in Python does use all the cores that you have, yeah, because the but libraries they're, are they're built doing like that through extensions, yes, and and yeah. through explicit yeah. GUI control. Yeah. <laughs> so the GUI is exists and it's a it's a it's it's a downer uh, because for instance that means that large-scale asynchronous programmers i mean asynchronous programs so here's the thing that i learned the people say oh this is a an io bound system so i can do it in node or python asynchronous uh, python async io yeah because it's an io bound system yeah but what i learned is that's an oversimplification. There are no I.O. bound systems. Huh. What you have is I.O. bound functions. Hmm. Systems have a mixture of I.O. bound and CPU bound functions. Yeah. And as they grow. A lot of times it's just shifting from, yeah. oh, this part is I.O. bound. And yeah. this part, yeah. you know, then we yeah. shift it. This part is CPU yeah. bound. So there's a, there's a failure mode in the evolution of systems that are built asynchronously with a single thread, which is the model of Node and Python, for example. The failure mode is, hmm, as we add features, the thing gets slower. <laughs> and why is that? Because the little tiny CPU intensive functions that you have are having, each of them is pulling the handbrake yeah. of the main loop, yeah. the event loop, a yeah. little bit further. And so, for instance, it's a very interesting example. So Yuri Selivanov, who I already mentioned, is a major contributor to Python asynchronous programming. He he created this. So the Async.io is a library that has a pluggable event loop. Mm -hmm. It's designed like that. They define this interface for the event loop so you can implement others. And he implemented one on top of the event loop that is used by Node, which is highly optimized yeah. and it's written in C++. So he, he wrote a Cyton uh, wrapper. You know, so Cyton is this thing that compiles a superset of Python to native code. Yeah. So he wrote a Cyton wrapper around the, the Node.js uh, event loop, and he called this thing UV loop. And he wanted to show how performant it was. And he has a benchmark that shows showed at the time about four years ago that it was nearly as performant as Go. But to achieve that result, he had to do something. 
Of course, for, for a very simple benchmark that is not realistic, he knows about that. He wrote about that. But when he was profiling, he noticed that uh, the library that he, he was using for doing a synchronous HTTP had a slow HTTP header parser. <laughs> right. yep. So that was the CPU yep. intensity. So he, this was a super stupid benchmark of just, you know, yeah. serving yeah. Yeah. 1K bytes blobs. Yeah. It's, That's all this it is, did. This reminds me of... Uh, but the parsing was CPU intensive. Yeah. This <laughs> so, reminds me of, remember the Tech Empower benchmarks, which they're not as interesting or, um, I don't know, as they used to be. But I remember there was a time when there was this big arms race in seeing who could be fastest on the Tech Empower benchmarks. <laughs> and all of a sudden, some some library framework, whatever, shot up above <laughs> all the others. It's like, oh my God, how did you get so fast? Oh, we just don't parse the headers of the HTTP request. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. You're yeah. so fast and totally useless. Yeah. So what, what, he, what Yuri did was he then went to, to, to this all this other trouble of wrapping up, also in Cyton, the HTTP parser in C++ used by Node. Uh -huh. So he had to develop this other library. And that's how he achieved near parity <laughs> with uh, Go. Yeah. But yeah. But anyway, so the point is that the GUI is really hurtful because of that. It's uh, it makes your life co complicated when. Well, it when, makes you when... want to do as little in Python as you possibly can, which is kind of well, if you're anti... worried about performance. <laughs> yeah, well, in terms right. of concurrency yeah. for I/O, yeah, it's a lot of things, right? Yeah. So you have to keep your... Uh, so one suggestion that I make to people who do a lot of asynchronous programming in languages that uh, by default only support one core, maybe this applies to projects in general, but for those particularly, you have to have in your CI pipeline a way to detect regressions in performance. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, because yeah. that has to be addressed immediately. Because it could be... Because some developer yeah. added some code, but, and all of a sudden that has really pulled on that guilt yes, handbrake, and exactly. now it's affecting everything. Because if you wait until all the developers are kind of bothered about it, then the problem is already yeah. maybe too widespread. Mm -hmm. yeah. I, I actually saw a project so die because of that. Automating, automating kind of detection of guilt issues is... And just is overall performance yeah. with IO, with the, you know, yeah. Yes, well, or performance in general. Yeah, yeah. yeah sure. Yeah, I uh, I have had yeah. numerous situations where I thought I knew better than Python when it came to performance. I go, oh, I don't want to do it this way; it'll be slow, which was, I mean, yeah. dumb in the first place. But yeah. but then I would discover that oh no, actually, if I do it what looks like the slow way, it's yeah. the fast way. Yeah. And that has to do with that approachability attitude that you mm -hmm. mentioned. Because, for instance, people say, oh, you should never concatenate strings because it's a, a square. <laughs> but the thing is, they know people do that yeah. in reality. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And since strings are immutable, they actually implemented this thing that, okay, no, we over, uh, we over allocate. Yeah. And then when they do that, when we can, yeah. we just add the content right there. Yeah. So mm -hmm. it's not 
Yeah. You know, I think think Java does the same thing. And they didn't used to. You used to have to use string builder because string concatenating strings was too slow. And so then everybody had to use string builder. But then at some point they're just like, let's just make it so that underneath the covers we do because you have do your do the optimization for the user compiler right yeah it's it's similar to like uh you know uh automatic transmission versus manual transmission yeah yeah Yeah, of course the manual is more if you know how to use it that's the point then it's more efficient (laughs) i really like a story that i think exemplifies this whole attitude that sometimes sometimes because sometimes people say no, people never need to understand this thing about concatenating strings and do it right, okay? They deserve to be punished by sl- slowness if they don't do it right, right? So I remember... Punishing compiler philosophy. Yes, yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> so I remember the first time I installed uh, uh, Debian in the 90s. Uh, so I had this, you know, like this, uh, how do you call them? This this PC that I just assembled out of parts, you know, how, how do you call them? There's a name for this here. Yeah, why not? Yeah. No, yeah, anyway. And I, I didn't know the brand of my CD-ROM, right? Mm-hmm. It was just this, this random X brand. Linux needs to know that. <laughs> the thing is, then the, 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 the machine booted from the installation CD. Uh-huh. And the installation, I went through several screens. Everything was working fine. And then it asked me, what exactly was my CD-ROM drive? Mm-hmm. Uh, in a li- and gave me a 400 options. And the version. Really, 400 options. Mm-hmm. And there was no option that said, please use the driver that's already working. <laughs> please. No. I just had to give up because I didn't know. Yeah, I did that many and, times when I tried to install it. It's just stupid. And then when I talked to a, a Debian advocate about that, he said, no. But you would be using a suboptimal driver. That's right. But at least it would work, man. You know, I would then be able to connect to the internet and do everything else and be able to learn about that shit. And maybe I would never need a faster CD-ROM driver because it's not really so important, right? Yeah. (laughs) No, but it would be suboptimal. So This is exactly why we call this Happy Path Programming is that we want the happy path and the right path to converge. Wow, that's awesome. Yes. (laughs) <laughs> so I have two more things I want to talk about. One is the probably still out there. Python is for scripting and you can't build big projects with it. And there, I think there's a lot of people who still have that attitude. What, what's mm-hmm. your. No, no. I think, I think that attitude now is completely forbidden because we have static typing and that's uh, what's that supposed to be the everything. thing that, prov- that prevented Python for being used. Was it? Okay. Yeah, I think yeah. static typing makes a huge difference there. Oh, yeah. There yeah, for, it helps a lot. Yeah, so that yeah. attitude the, is so we can for large yeah, teams can, and large can, codes. Yeah. Well, and then there's the, I mean, there's also the performance concern. Yeah, the performance concern is, is a, is a horizontal thing. scaling. But, yeah, well, but uh, Jeremy's company, what's Jeremy's company called? I forget. It's the security company. He says, <laughs> he says, we've never, that that's the performance has never been an issue for us yeah. and they run big systems in python and yes yeah. it's all python yeah, except sure. for one uh rust extension that yeah. he wrote yeah nice yeah. So, so they took the escape hatch yeah. when they needed and it, yeah. and it speeded so, things up yeah. dramatically so this is interesting one change that i made in the second edition of the book was because talking about the gill and its limitations is kind of it's always kind of depressing right? it's a downer yeah it is a, it is a downer 
But then I wanted to uh, explain to uh, my readers what, okay, so despite that, YouTube was built on that, Instagram, the back end, and, you know, a lot of... On Python. On Python, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. So... Uh, how successful. do you, yeah, how do you, uh, yeah, reconcile? How, yes, how, yeah. how do you reconcile that? Is so, the gill as bad as we yeah, make it out to yeah, be? And yeah, people have yeah. been able to yes. work around it, yeah. uh, yeah. or it hasn't been an issue, yeah. or <laughs> exactly. So that's what prompted me to create this chapter that didn't exist in the first edition before the, the chapters that talk about uh, threads and processes and uh asynchronous programming. This one is called uh, Concurrency Models in Python. Mm -hmm. And it starts with a contribution from Bruce, which was great. His insight that I uh, cite, that I mentioned there, that one of the challenging things of doing concurrent programming is that when you call a function in sequential code, you know when it's done, because that's when you get the result back. <laughs> that's right. That's right? when your execution continues to the yes. next line. And if you, if it blows up, you also know where to handle that, because yeah. that's the context where you are. But any other thing that does concurrent, whether it's asynchronous or threads or processes, introduces the problem that you don't know when it's done, mm -hmm. and how do you handle the errors that they happen I don't know, elsewhere, yeah. right? And can you and, cancel it? <laughs> yes, and whether, how do you kill the thing? Yeah. <laughs> and I, I guess I would it. add on top of that, what yeah. about effects? Yeah. Yeah. You know, side effects. Yeah. 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 What's, mm -hmm. it, what's it doing to the yeah. outside world? Mm -hmm. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So this chapter starts with that uh, discussion that uh, was a suggestion from uh, Bruce. And then I show a very simple, like small, like almost a hello world example in the uh, sequential uh, threads, processes, and uh, um, asynchronous. And then I talk about the GIL, and then I implement uh, uh, a little program that uh, checks large numbers for primality. And I show how threads don't work for that in Python because mm -hmm. of the GIL. Uh, so then I do it, I do it with processes and I do it kind of in a, uh, uh, sort, sort of a handmade way because I, I, I pick, I, I, I build a, a queue manually and then I do the thing and then I explain, okay, in the next, in the next chapter, we're going to see concurrent dot futures, which is heavily inspired from the library in Java. Mm -hmm. And it does that for you. It, it you know it it launches the workers and yeah. creates the queues and manages that for you. But here we are doing it explicitly so that you can understand. Because for instance, the queue is a mechanism that is super important in any kind of concurrent programming for yeah. communication, yeah. right? And to get the results back from the workers and so on. So that was the so that's the first part of the chapter. The second part is where I talk. Okay, so what? But how about at scale? Then I talk a little bit about our architecture, which is not a topic in the book. But it's, I decided to do that because I think I needed to cover that. Okay. Yeah. Because it's a matter of architecture. So, okay. for instance, when you do, when you, when you use uh, one of those middleware mm -hmm. uh, softwares like uh, G-Unicorn, mm -hmm. they... Yeah. What they do is they launch several Python processes for, 
for yeah. processes for you. And that's why yeah. people didn't know, didn't need to know yeah. explicitly anything about concurrent programming and still do yeah. uh, horizontal scaling across yes. cores in that, in that case. With Django yeah. that didn't support, yeah. you know, uh, any yeah. kind of concurrency yeah. mechanism, but... And yeah, then, so you so you yeah. needed to show people. Yeah. Yes, this is single threaded. Yes. But for a lot of use cases, you can just run multiple instances. Exactly. And yeah. you're gonna then be able to handle yeah. uh two, yeah. three, four, you know, how many ever yeah. how many yeah. ever yeah. instances you yeah. want to run yeah, X exactly. the, the load through yeah. your HTTP processor. And, 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 and so that part is split into different uh, kind of domains. So for instance, that's one domain, domain of mm -hmm. uh, web APIs. Yeah. Yeah. The other domain is uh, numerical computation. Then I yep. talk about all the other things, the, yeah. the libraries that actually release the GUI. And then there's also distributed libraries that you can send out, farm out jobs for lots of machines. Yeah. And then there's the third part oh, about Python usage in um, uh, systems administration or DevOps, mm -hmm. which is fine because you you're telling machines to do stuff for you. Yeah. So you can tell a thousand machines to do this stuff. Yeah. Because yeah, right. Yeah. So. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> it's very easy. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Um, did you have another topic? I did, okay. which was um, uh, the. I can't remember the name. Python in the browser. Um, oh, yeah. Oh, PyScript. PyScript. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Well, I am super excited about PyScript because I think, uh, well, for two reasons. As a teacher, when I uh, often taught programming from scratch, I haven't done it in a while, but I want to go back to doing that because it's something that I enjoy. Uh, there's two things that I that I that are challenging to do that with Python these days, and the first thing is that setting up the environment. <laughs> the <toolchain> is... <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah. So to be able to do that just in a single file, yeah. that's like in breakfast, doing breakfast today. We were I was joking about PHP. Yeah. That was what was nice about it to get started, right? Because you have this file where yeah. you have everything: the HTML, the the backend, the frontend, everything. One file. Great. Yeah. Right, you got started. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you just install <laughs> LAMP and start yeah. start writing your yeah. PHP, right? Exactly, because people of our age, uh, when we when we started learning to program, we would turn on a computer like an Apple II, and it would have these prompts to the basic interpreter. So yeah. that's it, right? Yeah. Very low barrier to entry. Yeah. yeah. So if I can write code in a script and open into the browser and see it running, that's amazing. And the second thing, just creating that like super easy entry right into the language. Yes. Yeah. And, and with with um, all the capabilities that you would. Yes. So the, there's been uh, Python interpreters or Python-like interpreters yeah. for the front for the browser for a while. They're probably just shipping it off to a server to then. No, run no. The thing. The people did like Brighton is a whole oh. new interpreter, but it's not C uh, Python, so it's not 100. Yeah, yeah. So the, I think the big advance now is that uh, PyScript was built on, on other amazing work like uh, PyoDide, which is uh, built on top of Enscripten, which is, you know, yeah. this whole tool chain to compile, you know, to interpret Python, to, to, to compile the C code of the Python interpreter okay. into WASM. Oh, wow. Okay. 
Okay. And do I that, for, and they are doing that I because see. Anaconda yeah. is leading yeah, that. Yeah. So that's really interesting because yeah. they have the power to do that for all for the entire ecosystem yeah. of scientific computation. Yeah. All of those libraries from PyTorWasm, yeah. they are going to be able to make sure they work. Yeah. And so, the, the, but the second thing that uh, that also uh, between I, that also motivates me to dive into PyScript is uh, between the first and the second edition of the book, I thought about writing a, bo a book for beginners, and uh, uh, and like people I totally new to programming. Yes, yeah. and for instance, one book that I like a lot is uh, uh, Alan Downey's uh, Think Python. Okay, okay. and he actually, his book has a very permissive license. There's lots of variations of it. Uh, think Java, think Perl, think I don't, I don't know. People are doing lots of variations, and I thought about oh, I'm gonna do a Think Go. Yeah, you know. But what I realized was that the kinds of examples that you can do with simple Python code or simple Go code is things that print to the terminal. Yeah, and if I thought about me when I was 15 years old, yeah. you know, today I think that's not a very exciting environment for a 15 year old. To yeah, to no, play. I mean even right. when I was learning Pascal, what's a terminal? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> is when that they're used to a browser? <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, when I started writing Pascal, my first language, yes. I did not write terminal maps. I wrote things that put pixels on the screen. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that mm -hmm. was exciting. Sure. Yeah. Exactly. Oh, yeah. Way more fun. exciting than text. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> so the fact that so much of and our it, learning now is and, and just like text in a terminal, it's so boring. Exactly. And for instance, the Apple ba Apple Basic, right? So you could mm -hmm. put pixels on the screen and it actually, you know, it, really Steve Wozniak is a genius because he had this mode that no other computer at the time had, which was a hybrid mode where the top of the screen like yes. eighty percent was graphic, uh -huh. and the top bottom four lines were text. Huh. Mm -hmm. Brilliant. That's brilliant, yeah. right? Yeah. So then you could really interactively yeah. do things. Yeah. So I wanted to do thing. I want to do things that are graphical. Yeah, visual. To, visual, yeah. exactly. And to do that in Python, you know, yeah, right. this you have to choose one of those GUI which libraries. one's the best. Yes, exactly, and then. And and do so to do web work. Oh, okay. So you have this all this whole other thing of the web. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just a mess. So that's why that's I cool. think it's exciting because this is, I'm sure, a reason why why Jupyter notebooks and Python yeah. have been so popular. Is sure, that exactly. with one line of code, you take a data set and render it yeah, in an exciting a, visual way. A graph, yeah, yeah, an interactive graph, yeah, an interactive yeah. graph. Yeah. <laughs> that's pretty darn compelling for exactly. a, yes. a new programmer to be able to write. Yeah, exactly. get so much value exactly. in a visual. Exactly. Stimulation, totally. you know, with, with yeah, so little. That's it. Yeah. So I, I would recommend to everybody to watch uh, Peter Wang's keynote at PyCon this year. Okay. I wasn't there, unfortunately, because of visa, visa issues. But you were? I Did was there. Yeah. yeah, it was very exciting. The Jeremy video. Saw it, you know. Yeah, the video is great. Just I recommend yeah. that people go watch it because it was some amazing demos. Oh, yeah. It was yeah. like, whoa, finally. Yeah. This huh. is happening. But 
people need to understand that PyStrip right now is very rough, right? Uh, it's like pre-alpha. Yeah. They're figuring out a lot of things. But I think I'm excited about it. Well, and the response to the keynote was huge. And I think that gave uh, Anaconda, uh, whatever the company is. Anaconda. A, Anaconda. Yeah, Anaconda. Yeah. Just a lot of, they go, oh, yeah, this is a good place to go. Yes. So oh, I yeah. think they are putting lots of effort yeah. behind it. Yeah. But I had talked to uh, Peter before. Mm -hmm. I had a one-on-one -on -one with him once because I was talking to uh, Dave Beasley, uh, this other Python author, that uh, about some things about being more friendly to beginners. And, and he said, oh, you need to talk to Peter Wang. So I didn't know about Peter Wang. Uh, then I found out he was the CEO of Anaconda. So about a couple of years ago, I had a one-hour conversation with him about things that I loved about, for instance, HyperCard. How it was a very approachable, uh, like a, a gradual, where you could learn gradually, do interesting things with the first uh, concepts that you knew about, and then grow into it. And uh, so, and he was that 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 was also his concern, you know. To mm -hmm. so they know that this is gonna be huge for people to get started. Well, or develop uh, yeah, in actual apps. In, you know, like for instance, in many colleges in, in in Brazil, for instance, for instance, it's super complicated to convince the IT department to allow to install something new right. on the lab machines, right? Yeah, and no, yeah, just, just the more constrained environment. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So no, yeah, it's funny just, how the the things that have nothing to do with the technology or very little to do are, are blockers. The politics, yeah. Yeah, yeah the, the, the bureaucracy. IT. The, the, the... <laughs> Those guys, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, what a bunch of bastards. <laughs> have you turned it on and off? So PyScript does sound super interesting. Yes. Yeah. Um, but I did want to come back real quick to CPython, or you called it... Uh, yes, yeah, CPython is the main interpreter written in C. Okay. Yeah. But, and is that the standard today or is that kind of the more high performance? No, it's the standard. Okay. But then there's also a new alternative to that, which is like Python and, on Python. Yeah, or it's PyPy. PyPy. And then so, what's, tell me what more about that and what's exciting about it. Cause I've heard. Okay. It's, yeah, it's really interesting. So PyPy is, uh, is written in a subset of Python that they call RPython. And, uh, and then there's this hugely complicated tool chain that, you know, if you really want to compile it from scratch, which they don't recommend, takes hours. Okay. Wow. <laughs> but the thing is, this is a Python interpreter that includes a just-in-time compiler. Okay. Ah. So it can be much faster than Python in many cases. Okay. But the main drag to its wider adopt a lot of important uh, projects use it in production and so on, but the main problem is that a lot of the external libraries that we are talking about that are super important are not compatible with it. Okay, because it uses a subset, it requires a subset, or no, or because no, they're just the the, I, I, the internal yet. APIs of okay. it are just different. just not there yet. Yes, mm -hmm. yeah, and they so want it could to be there. It's just it could, but yeah, and they have been very influential into advancing those external, uh, you know, uh, APIs for, yeah. you know, uh, CFFI in order to uh, make it easier for the, for extensions to work both with CPython and PyPy, but okay. 
It's still the long-term so. future PyPy? Is that where I don't think so. Uncertain? You know why? Because over the years, we've seen very small adoption from the core developers of that. Mm -hmm. And the, the community around the core of that is doesn't grow. Interesting. I think the, the yeah. tool chain, everything around it is just too, too complicated. To, yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, but what's happening now, which is really interesting, is that Guido went to work for Microsoft, right? Guido retired. And then Microsoft offered him, made him an offer he couldn't refuse. Well, he also, he told me this. He, speci well, he specified, yeah. I will work, I, I don't know what he said, 22 hours, 24 hours a week. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And they go, sure. Yeah. And he goes, okay. Yeah. Because then, then it but, fits with his lifestyle. But so. also, I don't know if he negotiated that, but also he yeah. created a team, right? He's There's a team, team around it. Yeah. yeah. And mm -hmm. it's. And he built it himself. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, huh. yeah, cool. uh, and so they are. And one of the people he, he brought in is uh, what's his name? Mm. I forgot now, but he's a guy who's who had previously, uh, like I don't know, six months or a year before Guido joined Microsoft, he had made a proposal that he would wa he, he wanted $500,000 to make Python 50% faster, okay, and people didn't mostly say you're you're a lunatic because they knew his contributions before and mm -hmm. so most people said yeah he probably can pull that off you know yeah but now he's doing it for microsoft okay. <laughs> mm -hmm. i mean for everybody mm -hmm. which is great great right because yeah because yeah. uh the, the the version that's in beta now is uh a lot of performance improvements yes this is well. happening now there's mm -hmm. a lot of yeah mm -hmm. sure yeah. So as we wrap up, any other things that are on the horizon that are exciting in the Python world? I mean, there's a whole bunch of peps. There's always peps. Yeah, always peps. Yeah. When I was at the um, Python conference, we talked to Jim Baker, and he had a proposal that sounds really interesting. And it's about um, string interpolation but you can build your own interpolators oh, and, cool. have yeah. them, and, and that could, I mean, so many yeah. people use it for this kind of processing that that could, and, and there's also type checking involved in the, you yeah, know, cool. so the reliability of I think the I talked to Jim when he was up in Crestview about this and told him to check out what's called it. Ah, uh, that might've inspired yeah. his, his yeah. idea because, um, you know, I don't know if it's a proposal yet, but, yeah. but Guido was very excited about that as well. So I think it's going to be very, uh, interesting and and a very different way that you know it's like yeah. oh I, I ne never even occurred to me to do that but I can see the value of it yeah. yeah so we don't have a lot of time to talk about that but I'm gonna suggest that people take a look at pep 695 type parameter syntax because that's gonna do away with the need to have this weird type var class that you have to import uh, from the yeah. typing module to pick mm -hmm. their type vars. Yeah. You will be able to use them in a more natural way like in Java. Yeah. And that's going to be huge, I that's think, cool. for people who like uh, uh, static, static typing. typing. Yeah. Uh, it's going to be a great improvement because it's going to, yeah, look at the, the first example. You have three lines of code, kind of long ones yeah. even. Going to one going line to one. very concise mm -hmm. syntax. And it, because it's similar it, to like other languages yeah. and how they right. And it will also it will also free lots of people from having to understand what covariant and contravariant <laughs> means. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Because mm. they discovered that they can infer from the really the, the methods. Yes. Oh, you know from the well, usage. Of the the usage. Yes. Yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Exactly. Yeah. So that's wow. that's a good thing. Okay. Yeah. I personally, huh. in my cool. in my in my travels with Python, I'm not, now I'm excited about learning Rust to mm. learn to do Python extensions. Yeah. That's what yeah. my personal next cool. focus yeah. is. Nice. So, well, that was super fun. Yeah, thank you, thank Luciana. You so much. Good to have you in Crested Butte. It's <laughs> amazing to be here with you guys. Thank you so much. Nice. Okay. Hey. Hey.